Hey everyone, first off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay out respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your Familiar Stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow Familiar Strangers, Dr. Julia Brown. Hello, Simon. Dr. Jodie Lee Trembar. I'm loving how doctory we are these days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Nearly there. Just four years. Kylie Wong-Dolan. Hello. And me. Still not a doctor, but still a Simon. Today we're going to start with me. Today what I want to talk about is the idea of being a dependent spouse. And I say this because in my hypothesized near future, I believe I will be a dependent spouse. My partner and I are going to Germany shortly and she's looking for jobs. And I assume that that means that I will be spending at least two years not doing or maybe not doing very much but looking after the home and working out what that means. And this is in no way a crisis of masculinity for me. This is something I'm quite comfortable with, the idea of doing. But I am interested in what you guys think of. I mean, for the last maybe 20 or 30 years, it's the assumption has been that both men and women will probably work together to support a household. What does it mean to be a spouse who works at home? And what, do, what does it mean for the kind of masculinities that we will see in the future if there are more men who are taking the position off work and looking to live at home. What do you guys think? Somebody this week has released a report saying that men don't take as much paternity leave as they're actually entitled to under, I think, under Australian law. But that kind of speaks to that same idea, right, that there is this notion that perhaps men don't take that time off, don't like to be the dependent spouse. And so it kind of makes sense to me that that would create a, an identity shift for anybody of either gender who has been a full-time working professional and moves to being and working within the home. And, and I would just challenge the idea that you won't be doing very much by working in the home. Because I don't think that's quite how it's going to be. No, but it'll be different. It will be very different. Unless, of course, you're at home writing papers, in which case it will be exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of research around the idea of how your identity shifts when you take on a new role within the household. And that identity work that you have to do is often very challenging. Don't say that, Jodie. I'm not looking forward to being challenged. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the fact this isn't a crisis of masculinity for you is a good thing because at least you're not going to have to overcome that. But I mean, when I first moved to Australia with my husband, he had a job and I didn't and I was waiting to start studying. So there was like a six month period that I didn't work. I did not know what to do with myself. I started crafting, which I'd never done before. I felt like if I didn't have dinner on the table, what good was I? Like it was just, I was like, who am I? It was a bizarre experience for me. And I definitely had to do a lot of work about working out who I was and what my worth was if I didn't have a job. I think it's also really interesting because it seems to give value to the spouse's career. So maybe that's where the crisis is. Like for you and your partner, you've, you're both doing PhDs, probably similarly employable at the end. And to make that sacrifice for one career over the other, maybe that's where the tension is. 
Is it firstly the case that somebody has sacrificed job prospects in order to follow their partner somewhere where they have got job prospects? Or is it simply that you're unemployed and potentially financially supported? It may not be a matter of sacrifice. It may just be a matter of not having a job at that time. It's been an interesting kind of debate because for me, the idea of being a dependent spouse is not particularly problematic, but it is problematic for my spouse and not of herself, but of me. The idea that I would not be doing something. She often says, like, I think you wouldn't be satisfied. Again, I don't want to devalue the work that people do at home because I think that work is persistently devalued. And I think there's a lot of work that obviously building a home takes a lot of energy. For me, the real question is, as society continues to change, and particularly as the role of men and women continues to change, and increasingly it becomes more normative for women to step into positions of financial, you know, paid remunerated work, and it becomes more normative for men to step away from those positions, how will it transform masculinity? How will it transform the way in which men and women relate to each other and those gender roles? And I guess then, what does it mean for me as I move forward in the rest of my life, if this is something that does happen. Even in somewhere like Sweden, which is sort of held up, certainly in Australia at least, as they have all their gender stuff sorted, even there men take less paternity leave, they take less carers leave than women do. My reading of work in that area has been that given the choice and the absolute freedom to pursue formal paid work or domestic work, my interpretation was that when people did have the choice and had all the same rights that women were choosing particular kinds of roles and men were choosing more traditional roles too. That comes back to patriarchal structures to me like I think we a lot of what we do and this is the structure agency debate again I know but a lot of what we do we do because we are primed to do so from birth and even mm. as adults, when, you know, policies are changed, that doesn't mean that totally. our mindset is able to change as easily. Kylie, what are you thinking about this week? Well, a couple of days ago, I arrived back in Canberra after spending a couple of weeks in the Northern Territory in a place where I have planned to and think I can now do my fieldwork next year. It was a great time, but it was also my first time doing any kind of fieldwork in an anthropological capacity, and I'm using quotations there. And I think one of the most challenging things for me, even just over a 10-day period, was thinking about how to spend my time. So I wanted to ask your advice, or at least hear your stories about what a day, a typical day in the field looked like to you. Can I just start by saying that I think it's really great that you've had the opportunity to do some scoping field work in the sense that it's just a preliminary exploration as for how you might do things for a longer period of time. And I, I think that that's what a lot of anthropologists do, but it's never really something that's on record. Yeah, absolutely. What listeners may not know about me, but you guys all know about me, is that I'm a pretty big introvert. And so I I literally had to schedule 10-minute breaks in the toilet for myself to just go and, like, hide and not have people around and regroup and breathe <laughs> um, for at least the first month because, yeah, being around people and absorbing not just other people's ideas or other people's thoughts, but also their energy and the emotions they were experiencing. I I was taking all of that on and feeling those feelings myself and I was exhausted by that. Wow. Yeah. Can I add something at the other end of that spectrum? 
so after a couple of days of having these scheduled meetings with stakeholders and stuff, and given that it was a, a quite a busy time in the place where I was, and so a lot of people I hoped to spend a lot of time with were otherwise occupied, I experienced a lot of time when I felt at a loose end. And so I think I had expected a bit more of the chaos that you speak about and was nervous about that. But at different times, it looked really quite the opposite. Things were quiet. I didn't know what to do. I felt I traveled a long way and should be making use of every second, but didn't know how to do that. I don't want to say it's normal to be bored in the field. There's an irony. You're in the field, right? And you are totally immersed in a society. But at the same time, you will have, unless you're in like a really intense particular kind of sociality, you will probably have times when you're on your own and not doing anything. I think we just have to be comfortable with that. And I would just say that even though you do learn over time what you should be paying more attention to in terms of your research focus, at the same time, you never know what is actually going to become more significant when you look back at your data. So it's a bit of an added pressure, but you've got to make sure that even in those downtime moments, you're careful to be reflexive about those and observe things that seem really ordinary just in case they end up informing your analysis quite significantly later. I think that's a really good point. And perhaps I had that in my head at the time in some of those times when I wasn't particularly occupied. And it was that idea that made me feel guilty for not doing anything, even though I didn't think it was appropriate. I felt like I should be listening and learning and talking because even though it didn't look like anything was happening, I felt like I should but that is something happening in a way. Yeah. You know? mm. Yeah, I think so too. Like why is there nothing happening right now? Like that's a, an interesting question, right? And if the answer to that is there is stuff happening and it's out of my sight, why is it likely that you're not allowed to be involved in that? That's interesting too. And in terms of what to do with your hands during times like that, I mean – that's a fantastic opportunity to have the notebook out and be making the notes about things that you didn't have time to write down earlier. It's a great opportunity to be writing down what you can see around you. When I came to write up my descriptions, they were much thicker and I could choose like what parts of that imagery are going to paint the picture for my reader. So Jody, what are you thinking about this week? This week, I have been thinking a lot about the kind of media furor that's been going on around China and around... So I don't know if you guys have seen that all of the vice chancellors of Australian universities got called to a meeting with the Minister for Education, Dan Tian, and I think in the same meeting, or maybe it was a later meeting, also with the heads of our intelligence agencies, to talk about how Australia's universities are now too reliant on Chinese international students. It's like putting universities in Australia in a position where if things went badly with China then and China just pulled all of their international students, we would be left in a financial difficulty because too many of our international students are Chinese and also and I, I, I'm not even sure like what the interaction between these two ideas is but also that Australia is experiencing international espionage at unprecedented levels and that we are putting Australia's national security at risk by having so many international students from China. So my question for you and and I don't know the answer myself but my question for you is 
how do you draw the line? Where do you find that that space where between what is just racism, what is racist policy, what is racist thinking versus taking realistic measures. I mean, it's not like war has never happened. It's not like spies don't exist. Of course, every country, literally every country has espionage programs that are, you know, we we spy on our allies, we spy on our foes. Every country does it. So it's not like spies don't exist. It's not like war doesn't happen. So what is a realistic approach to something like this? And what is just xenophobic fear-mongering and how do you know the difference? Well, I wanted to expand on a couple of things you mentioned about firstly the security risk posed to Australia by cohorts of Chinese students and secondly the financial gain that Australian universities receive from having so many enrolled international and Chinese students. Those arguments seem to be put forward alternatively as either risks or or benefits of having great numbers of enrolments of Chinese students in Australian universities, but what bothers me is that they are seen as either posing a security risk to Australia or, on the flip side, as offering great financial reward for Australia and Australian universities. What that does is overlook the experience and the humanity of students who are coming to achieve a degree, become educated at an Australian, often very prestigious Australian universities, seeking opportunities that are different and sometimes not available in China. So when we use those two lines of arguments, we overlook people's experiences and think of them as either security risks or or cash cows. Yeah, it's like they've been sort of removed from themselves to become this imaginary of what, yeah, of what a, either what a spy or a financial benefit looks like. Yeah. An embodiment of that rather than an embodiment of their actual lives and experiences. And I guess that discrimination based on the fact that Chinese people are characterised that way is racist, right? The the concern about cybersecurity may not be racist one but the actions and attitudes that come out of that kind of uh, statement or that kind of announcement are racist and they create a xenophobic environment that we then as a society buy into and enhance i just think it's really hard to to juggle you don't want to objectify these students and reduce their experiences to some kind of imagined hypothetical Chinese spy. I think at the same time we have to ask ourselves, do we think Chinese spying is a problem? The, the fact that we worry more about Chinese spies than we do about American spies or British spies or Israeli spies or whoever. There's obviously a kind of racial element to it. But do we think as anthropologists is being spied upon a bad thing. Well, it's our vocation. <laughs> it's our vocation. Maybe that's valid. <laughs> I think it's more obvious than spying. I think being an anthropologist is like being a very public spy. Mm. With people's permission. With people's permission, mm. yeah. I'm going to have to rework my project entirely, <laughs> 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 knowing this. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I'm glad that we're having a good laugh here, guys, because have you heard about how some people think that anthropologists are angry? Have you heard that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can have a listen to a recent episode of Sam Harris's Making Sense podcast with Jared Diamond, the geographer who wrote Guns, Germs and Steel that some listeners may or may not be familiar with. Harris and Diamond were having a bit of a chuckle about angry anthropologists because Diamond has copped more than a bit of criticism 
from anthropologists over the years about his work. And apparently anthropologists get angry at Diamond for attempting to capture things that anthropologists do, but without acknowledging the same depth and diversity of culture and, I guess, wider ethnographic literature and theory that an anthropologist might. I had this experience recently while reading a book about schizophrenia called The Heartland by Nathan Filer, a proclaimed author and mental health nurse. And it's really engaging, but it doesn't incorporate any of the over 70 years of anthropological literature, including on areas the book claims that there is no information on at all. I would be lying if I said I didn't feel a little bit disgruntled about that. Can anthropologists like me really get so angry when we don't do a better job of communicating these things ourselves? I think what you're talking about is a divide that is sometimes very real and sometimes imagined between anthropology and other disciplines. It seems to me that anthropology is just as bad at not engaging with other kinds of methods and literature as scholars from other disciplines are guilty of failing to engage with anthropological literature. So... I definitely see your point. If, you, if you're if you not engaging with literature on our topic, then that's a responsibility that, that you've failed at. Yeah. Look, but I, I think it happens both ways. Yeah, right? I totally agree. And I think in the case I was talking about when I got a little bit angry, it was because I've spent <laughs> a lot of, of like, <laughs> I've spent many years reading literature outside of anthropology on the subject of schizophrenia, right? Because I feel a responsibility to inform myself of all these different disciplinary perspectives before commenting on the anthropological one. But... Like we're still not good at giving back to a wider literature. Not enough of us write books for a public audience. Because anthropology so values its methods and community that it that it seeks validation from those kinds of communities and not others. Is that, is that yeah, the kind of culture maybe. you're talking about? I don't think anthropologists have a, a right to be angry, but I think there's a lot of junk information out there. There's, there's like an image problem that anthropology has that people assume that anthropology is still just like dead people or archaeology. All white guys. All white guys studying remote living indigenous tribes, that it's not something much more holistic, which anthropology is now. I think changing that image is both part of anthropology's problem, but is also a problem that others have about anthropology. It's not just our own fault. This might seem like a broad claim, but I think anthropology can save lives quite seriously if people were better informed about the way the world works and I think anthropology fundamentally if it does anything it says this is how the world works then we could yeah make a make a serious measured and measurable difference to the rest of the world so yeah maybe we do have the right to be how do we make ourselves more valuable in terms of people wanting to look at the anthropological literature in the first place I think it's about the way we write I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day about Jared Diamond. He was saying academics just write, it's just so turgid and boring. And the only academics work that I've ever read and enjoyed since I finished university is Jared Diamond. And I was like, no, not Jared Diamond. No, why? Don't do that. You're an intelligent human being. You know, this kind of like, you know, the typical angry anthropologist response, right? (laughs) And he challenged me. He was like, you know, show me an academic text that I'm going to find interesting and sure, I'm happy to go there. But, you know, this is, it's engaging work. He cites what he he talks about. He shows his references. So he's very plausible on a topic that, 
isn't my area of expertise. Why wouldn't I listen to him? He's writing for me. And then I thought, well, all right, challenge accepted. I'll go back and reread Guns, Gems and Steel. And so I, I started rereading it and I was like, you know what? There are some perspectives out there that that academia can help dispel. And Jared Diamond's doing a hell of a lot better at that than we are because he's writing for those people and we're not. So I say everybody should go out and read Jared Diamond until we get our acts together and do better. That was a great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Jody. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I want to thank Julia Brown. Thank you. Jodie Lee Tramboff. Thanks, Simon. Kylie Wong-Dolan. Thank you, everyone. And me, Simon Theobald. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Cato and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>